Revelation 19.11. Let's read this last section. This is where it really gets good. Then I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse, the one sitting on it is called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems, and he has a name written that no one knows but himself, and he's clothed in a robe dipped in blood, and the name by which he is called is the Word of God. And the armies of heaven, arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh he has a name written, King of kings and Lord of lords. Then I saw an angel standing in the sun. With a loud voice he called to all the birds that fly directly overhead. Come gather for the great supper of God to eat the flesh of kings the flesh of captains, the flesh of mighty men, the flesh of horses and their riders, and the flesh of all men, both free and slave, both small and great. And I saw the beast and the kings of the earth with their armies gathered to make war against him who was sitting on the horse and against his army. And the beast was captured, and with it the false prophet who in its presence had done the signs by which he deceived those who had received the mark of the beast and those who had worshipped its image. Uh, these two were thrown alive into the lake of fire that burns with sulfur, and the rest were slain by the sword that came from the mouth of him who was sitting on the horse, and the birds were gorged with their flesh. So that is middle school boy paradise for biblical imagery and stories and birds eating people and Jesus and the horse and the sword and all that stuff. Um, mounts says this, nowhere in Revelation is the victorious Christ portrayed in symbols and language more likely to convince the reader that in spite of Satan's best efforts, God and the Lamb will emerge triumphant in the end. Uh, the language of apocalyptic is sufficiently flexible to allow the destruction of the great city in chapter 18 to be followed by a final battle in chapter 19. Chronology must never be allowed to determine how truth can be expressed. So you understand what he's saying. If you're paying attention to chapter 17 and 18, you say, wait, I thought God judged Babylon and all the rest of them back then and he destroyed them and it was over. He did. This is the same thing being described with a different camera angle and a different emphasis. And so you can't read all this stuff in chapter 17 has to happen first and then the very next thing because that's not how Revelation works on any level. It's a camera reset and it's a recapitulation of the same thing. Um, Poitras points out that Jesus shows up as a divine warrior. And it's an expanded description of uh, Christ defeating and judging the ungodly forces at the end of history. And all of these details, Ramsey says, you've seen earlier in the visions. And here's the one thing I want to point out before we walk through this. When you left off in the first half of chapter 19... The last hallelujah was a hallelujah for what? It's a wedding. We're going to a wedding. Everyone's excited for the wedding. And you keep reading in chapter 19, and Jesus shows up. 
we probably don't think about this, but for the original audience, they would have instantly, immediately realized Jesus isn't dressed for a wedding here. And the imagery would be something like this contrast, right? You're ready for a wedding, and in walks the groom in his fatigues and boots and his rifle strapped across his chest. I'm not trying to post any weird revelation United States of America Army stuff on you. I'm just giving you what the contrast is like in our culture. You don't expect the groom to walk in like this. And you just saw a wedding, and in walks Jesus, and all of these descriptors of Jesus are militaristic and violent. They're not like he's there for a wedding yet. Which is, remember, we said the wedding's mentioned, but the description of it comes later. Something has to take place here. Uh, Evil has to be defeated. So let's work through this section. This is the second time in the book of Revelation that heaven has been opened. So the other one was all the way back in chapter 4. Chapter 4, right after the letters to the churches, uh, heaven is opened and John is said to come up here and see this vision and the things that are going to take place. And it's the vision of the holy God and the Lamb who sits on the throne. And one of the things I told you back in chapter 4 is that the people who want to try to insert the idea of a pre-tribulation rapture of the church out of this world before things get bad, they put it in Revelation 4.1. Heaven is opened and up goes the church. And I'm just pointing out to you that this is an entirely different context and heaven is opened again. And nobody thinks the church is raptured in this one. There's no reason to think the church is raptured in the first one other than it's a convenient place for people to try to work that in. But it's the same imagery, and it has nothing to do with the church being raptured. It has to do with John seeing a vision, John receiving a vision from God, and that's the the parallel here. The first thing John sees is a rider on a white horse. Uh, It's interesting that in this section he's never called Jesus. I don't know if you noticed that, but... He's not called Jesus. He's called a lot of other things, and clearly it is Jesus. Um, And it's a terrifying description of Jesus. And what I want to do is just walk through these images, and I'm going to give you some references on the screen that I don't think I put on your notes. You can jot them down if you want to. We'll just kind of talk through these uh, as we go. The rider on the horse. He is faithful and true. He's the Word of God. He's the King of kings and the Lord of lords. Those are the titles attributed to Jesus in this section. Um, The one who's faithful and true. That's straight out of Revelation chapter 1. The very first vision that John sees of Jesus, he describes him as the one who is faithful and true. So he's tying that all the way back to the end. The Word of God, straight out of John chapter 1. In the beginning was the Word. And the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Uh, John, who wrote Revelation, I think, also wrote John the Gospel, and there's a parallel there. Uh, This business of uh, King of Kings and Lord of Lords, it's referenced back in chapter 17, verse uh, 14. And one of the things that we probably don't realize because of our culture today is that in the ancient world, Lots of people took the title King of Kings and Lord of Lords. 
in lots of different cultures. Persians, Greeks, Babylonians. Every time a new empire took over from another empire, somebody had to take this title, King of Kings, Lord of Lords, whatever, whatever. I'm the greatest, I'm the best. And this is an apocalypse. It's an unveiling. And it's saying to people, that phrase would have been very familiar to people in the ancient world. All sorts of political rulers would have been using that title. And it's saying, the Jewish carpenter from Galilee is actually him. It's not Xerxes. It's not Nebuchadnezzar. It's not any of these big time emperors and world rulers. But it's actually Jesus who's the king of kings. Um, there's business here about he has crowns and he has a robe and he has names written on his thigh. Um, you want to talk about people pulling weird stuff out? There's people that try to talk about Jesus having tattoos. This is tattooed on Jesus. You should get tattoos, tat whatever. We can talk about tattoos and another thing. This doesn't have anything to do with tattoos. If you go back to Revelation 17 and 18, previous passages in the book, Remember, we've talked about this satanic trinity of the beast and the beast and the dragon. And they are described as having names written on them. Why would they do that? It's because Jesus is described in this way. And they're parroting Jesus. Everything they do is a parody uh, of the trinity. So those are the titles given to Jesus. Faithful and true, word of God, king of kings, lord of lords. Uh, in righteousness he judges and makes war. And we saw this previously in the section, his judgments are true and just. Okay, all this stuff about the birds, come eat all of these people who are destroyed in the lake of fire and all that stuff. To Americans, that stuff seems way over the top. It seems like you need to calm down, you're overreacting, you're throwing a temper tantrum. And John is going to great lengths to say to you, he's doing this in righteousness. It's not too much, it's not too little, it's exactly measured in what it ought to be in God's response to sin. Uh, he has eyes like a flame of fire. You've seen that in the book of Revelation already, Revelation 1 and 2. Let me just give you an example of how apocalyptic writing works. If I say to you, or if you say to your kids, I have eyes in the back of my head. What does that mean? I see everything. You're not sneaking anything past me. I know what you're doing. Does it literally mean two eyeballs? Nobody, not one of you thought that. Because you know what the saying means. And apocalyptic literature is like that consistently. When it says he has eyes like a flame of fire, artists try to pick up on that kind of detail and they draw these pictures of Jesus and his eyes are bursting out flames. Like, okay, that's the image, but that's not, you take it seriously, but not literally. We've done that consistently in Revelation. Take it seriously, but not literally. And what he's saying is he sees it all. How do you know that his judgments are just and righteous and true and measured and accurate? It's because he sees everything. Nothing has got past him. Nothing is unknown to him. He knows it all. Everything is being brought into account. This judgment is just and it's righteous. Uh, he has many diadems on his head. Many diadems. If you go back and look at uh, chapter 12, 
verse 3, uh, the dragon has, I believe, seven diadems. And then you meet a beast from the land in chapter 13, and he has, I think it's ten diadems. And Jesus has many diadems. So, I don't know what that is. A dozen? Twenty? Fifty? You understand the number is not a literal number in any of these. That's not the point. He has way more diadems uh, than all of these fake, phony rulers that you've met so far. He has a robe dipped in blood. This is a good point to talk about one of the ways you make sense of things in Revelation. You can find a lot of commentaries that say, okay, this is Jesus, and he has a robe dipped in blood, so... When was Jesus bloodied at the cross? This is his blood. And they try to trace some sort of salvific thing out. There's no salvation being described here. This is only judgment for his enemies. And if you actually go back to the Old Testament, Isaiah 63, this is almost word for word described in Isaiah 63. This imagery, John is not making this up out of nowhere. He's pulling it from the Old Testament. He's seeing it in this vision. He's using the language of the Old Testament to describe it. In Isaiah 63, it very clearly describes this divine warrior having the blood of his enemies splattered on him. So you understand this image of Jesus with his robe dipped in blood. It's not talking about Jesus dying on the cross. That was back in a previous vision where the lamb ransomed people with his blood, people for God. This is talking about Jesus destroying his enemies and their blood is splattered on his garment. That's the imagery. Uh, the armies of heaven. He comes with the armies of heaven. Um, you have to decide if you think that's angels or people. Uh, there's pretty good arguments either way. I think he's talking about believers. I think he's talking about humans, not the angelic host. There's other places that talk about that. I think he's talking about his people, and you can see the parallels in 17. Um, they're clothed. These, these people with Jesus are clothed in the righteous deeds of the saints in these white garments, if you trace it back in the chapter. I think he's talking about uh, believers, and we'll come back to that. Uh, he has a sharp sword coming out of his mouth. Again, that's not... John just making stuff up. That's straight out of the book of Isaiah. Um, it's straight out of Ephesians 6. The Word of God is the sword of the Spirit. It's uh, Hebrews 4. The Word of God is living and active. It's like a sharp two-edged sword. It's straight out of 2 Thessalonians 2. When Jesus comes back and Paul says he destroys the man of lawlessness with the breath of his mouth. Again, you're not to image or to picture Jesus literally having a sword coming out of his mouth, but it's saying that he speaks and it happens. He's not coming back. You, you see the pictures on Facebook where Jesus is arm wrestling Satan? He's not coming back to have like over the top Lincoln Hawk arm wrestling contest with the devil. He's not coming back to have a contest with Apache helicopters and tanks and who can have the biggest gun and nuclear weapons. That's not, the, that's not it. It's his word. And it's a sharp two-edged sword. And when he speaks, that's it. That's what he uses to destroy his enemies. 
So he's got this sharp two-edged sword coming out of his mouth. He has a rod of iron to rule the nations. Straight out of Psalm 2. The Lord says to his anointed, uh, to his Messiah, uh, you are my son, I've begotten you, ask and I'll make the nations your inheritance. Uh, your inheritance, your heritage, you'll rule them with a rod of iron. It's a prophecy about Jesus. It's talked about in Revelation, uh, in the letters to the churches, and in chapter 12, verse 5. Um, remember in Revelation 12, 5, this is kind of interesting. The child is born to the woman. Remember, the woman in the vision is not Mary, but it's the people of God, and the child is born. And he is to rule the nations with a rod of iron, but he's caught up. And he doesn't rule them immediately. And the conflict keeps raging. And John's circling back to that image and he's saying now he's ruling. He's come back. The inter-advental period is over. Christ has returned and he's ruling over his enemies with this rod of iron. Uh, he treads the winepress of the fury of God's wrath. That phrase literally comes out of Isaiah 63. John just pulls it straight out of Isaiah. Uh, the image of this wine press is that something is pressing down with weight. And the imagery when applied to judgment is that God's wrath is pressing down on people and crushing them. It's supposed to be a shocking image. I mean, the image is mashing these grapes. They're destroyed. They're pulverized. They're flattened. And that's God's wrath pressing down and crushing people. Um, you saw it back in Revelation 14. Remember Revelation 14, there's two harvests. There's a grain harvest, and it leads to life for God's people. And there's a grape harvest, and it leads to judgment and destruction for God's enemies. So those are the images applied to Jesus. Uh, next, John uh, saw an angel, and the angel summoned a beast and a false prophet and those who dwell on the earth, and they're summoned to the slaughter of Armageddon. Notice we're not calling that the battle of Armageddon. We're calling it the slaughter of Armageddon. We talked about Armageddon a few weeks back, and it really wasn't much of a battle. Uh, and slaughter is the more accurate term here. And it's striking to read Revelation 19 and to think about these two banquets. There's two, two dinners, and you're going to go to one of them. There's a wedding dinner. And you get nice garments, and Jesus is there. Or you go to this dinner where the birds are summoned to come and eat the flesh of God's enemies. It's a striking contrast. And everyone's going to one of those dinners. Either you go and you sit and you dine and you celebrate with Jesus, or you are literally the main course uh, in, in your destruction. John assures us, that Jesus will defeat the beast, that's the beast from the land, political power, Antichrist. He'll defeat the false prophet, that's the sea beast, the kings of the earth, those who receive the mark of the beast, all of them. They all get defeated. Uh, and we won't spend much time on this, but he, the imagery comes right out of Deuteronomy 28 and Ezekiel 38 and 39. And I keep giving you all these references. I know we don't chase them all down. Just one of the things I want to drum into you is that People love studying Revelation. Like they go crazy for it. It's all the Old Testament. That's all it is over and over and over again. The number of Old Testament allusions in chapter 19 
if you just dig into the commentaries, I've just given you an over-the-surface of it. It's all just pulled out of the Old Testament. If you want to understand Revelation, you have to understand all that stuff in the Old Testament. You can't just jump into this book and start assigning meaning to things however you want to do it. You have to know what John's pulling it from. So Deuteronomy 28, Ezekiel 38. Uh, beast and the false prophet are thrown into the lake of fire. You can go back to Matthew 25. Jesus talks about an uh, eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. And this is it. Um, I gave you a whole list of quotes here. I just want to point out a few ideas in each of these and we'll get to uh, the conclusion. Schreiner says, uh, the lake of fire shows up for the first time here. We'll see it again in chapter 20. So we're going to come back to this idea next week. We're going to talk about it a lot. Uh, it's a place of torment. It's identified with the second death. Uh, Mark Wilson, in talking about this last section, the slaughter of Armageddon, I just like what he says in the middle. There's no battle described here. There's no tanks, no arm wrestling. There's no conflict. There's no, oh, he had to outflank them, the strat. There's none of that. It's just a slaughter. That's the battle. Uh, Hamilton, battles over in an instant. And two of the three members of the false trinity are captured, thrown into the lake of fire. Satan will get his in chapter 20. We'll talk about that next month. Guthrie, as she's talking about the second half of 19. Okay, there's a lot of joy in the first half of 19 with a wedding. But in the second half, there's no joy in this. These people are being crushed. And she says, look, it's figurative. It's apocalyptic. This is not like a literal thing. But you understand the imagery is horrific for a reason because this judgment of God is a horrific thing. Uh, Shriner, this is an apocalyptic thing. It's not a transcript of how it's going to play out. You don't have to literally think that birds are going to eat people. But the image of that and the horror of that is communicating something to you about what's really going to happen when God acts to judge people through Jesus. Uh, one last quote from Shriner. There are no second or third or fourth acts once it's thrown into the lake of fire. Uh, and all the enemies of God are destroyed here. So that's chapter 19. Let me give you just a few thoughts of application. This is right where we started. Number one, God is glorified in salvation and God is glorified in judgment. And you've got to wrap your head around that. And I think one of the one of the most remarkable books I've ever read is a book by a guy named James Hamilton. I've quoted him a lot, his commentary on Revelation. He's a professor uh, at Southern Seminary. He wrote a book called God's Glory and Salvation Through Judgment. And all he does in this whole book, this is a long book, 600 pages, is he goes through the Bible from Genesis to Revelation and he pulls out every instance where God is said to be glorified in salvation, saving people, and in judging people. And both of those things are true. This is, this is very evident in Revelation 19 with these hallelujah choruses that God is coming to destroy his enemies. But it's not invented in Revelation 19. It's literally the story of the Bible from beginning to end. Um, it's not the most thrilling book to read through, 
But when you work all the way through it from Genesis to Revelation, you, you see it all the way through the Bible that God is glorified in salvation uh, and in judgment. This quote from Schreiner is great. Uh, the praise comes after the judgment, not before. Uh, why does this matter? As long as unbelievers are alive, we are to long and pray for their salvation. But on the last day after history has concluded, we will see that the judgment of God is right and true and just. None of us will question whether those who are in hell should be there, for we will see the perfect righteousness and goodness of God's kingdom. Um, I don't have to tell you that people hate the idea of hell. They absolutely detest it. And you just have to make a decision. Am I going to allow the sensibilities of my culture to determine what I believe to be true? Or will I submit the sensibilities of my culture to what the Bible says? And we been reading a book as a staff we talked about it in staff meeting this morning is about discipleship and one of the ideas we talked about is that we should not be embarrassed about anything the bible says you don't have to apologize for anything that the bible says you can actually be confident that when the bible speaks to something god knows what he's speaking about and you can take a stand there and you don't have to apologize to anyone for any of it uh, you can just simply take your stand on God's word. Um, we'll just jump down. I like this quote from Peterson. Um, he says, It's not my task here to account for the difficulty posed by a holy God working salvation through these ancient battles. It will hardly do for us to be more scrupulous than God. And that's kind of where the world's at. We think we have better sensibilities about right and wrong than God. We think we're kinder than God. We think we're more sensitive to what's good and bad and right and wrong and what would be fair than God is. And Peterson just kind of says, if, if you think that, that's the pinnacle of hubris. That is all the way back to Eden, to the original catastrophe, to two human beings saying, I know God said this, but we think we know better and we're going to do that. And it's a ridiculous thing. Uh, to say so God is glorified in salvation and judgment next the Lord's Supper is a preview of the messianic banquet that awaits the people of God I realize that when we celebrate the Lord's Supper and you're trying to figure out what to do with that little plastic thing in the wrapper and you're trying to not spill the last little drop of juice and all that. You are not, I look out at you, I see you. You're not completely overcome with awe in that moment like John falling down and worshiping the angel, right? When we take the Lord's Supper, it kind of seems, I don't want to be uh, just silly about it, but it kind of seems silly. Right? Like we're sitting in a room with a bunch of people. We're reading a 2,000-year-old book, and we're eating a little tiny cracker. And then we're drinking a little thing, and it kind of seems weird. I don't know if you think of it as weird. If you talk to non-Christian people, they think it's weird. What are you doing? Why? This is your blood and flesh, and what are you doing? 
it's weird to them. Um, and it's not an inspiring thing. And maybe it's because we don't have the hallelujah chorus blaring out when we're taking the Lord's Supper. Like m most churches, when they take the Lord's Supper, they try to make it a very somber thing, a very sad thing. And they're trying to like work up feelings of guilt. Like they're trying to subtly say to you, you should feel really bad. You did this to Jesus. This is all your fault. Did you ask Jesus to forgive you for all the things you did this week? How, do you know how many bad things? You probably shouldn't even take this. You okay, there's a place in the Lord's Supper to confess sin. A hundred percent to confess sin. And Paul says that to, to the Corinthians. You should not eat the bread or drink the cup without discerning and thinking about your sin. And you should confess your, son, your sin to God. But the, the whole thing about the Lord's Supper is pointing to this wedding. And nobody's at the wedding saying, oh, I feel so terrible, I feel so bad. Like they're screaming, celebrating the wildest, most excited hallelujah you can ever imagine. That's what they're doing when they, when they celebrate this meal. Um, Peterson, I'll let you read the Peterson quote here. I don't need to read it to you. I will tell you this. A lot of times as a pastor... You talk to people who have been religious. They've kind of fallen away. They're getting back in church. And they have this feeling like they need to get rebaptized. People will say that to a pastor all the time. I think I should get rebaptized. I think I should recommit my life. I think I should do this. I don't know if it took the first time. I need to do this thing again. And the, the usually the counsel to those people, sometimes you say, yeah, I don't think you had any clue what happened the first time you got in the baptistry, and you don't need to get re-baptized, you need to get baptized, genuinely baptized, yes. But sometimes what you say to people is, no, you need to take the Lord's Supper. You get baptized once, you take the Lord's Supper over and over and over again. And when you take it, yes, you confess sin, yes, you think about Jesus suffering on the cross and the horror of that, but you also look forward. Jesus said to his disciples in that meal, we're eating this now, and I'm not going to eat it again until that's the real meal coming. Not the little cracker at Emmanuel. That's the preview. The real meal's coming. That's when I'm going to eat it. And Paul says, you take the Lord's Supper in Corinth, you keep doing it, you proclaim Jesus' death until he comes back. When he comes back, you get the real thing, the real celebration. Um, and it's a reminder to us of what Christ has done and it should be a celebration not just a mourning and a sorrowful thing there should be joy in that Schreiner says the about the the final marriage supper no feast compares to this feast uh, and the joy at this supper is incomparable to any joy on earth um just one little note before we move on, because we don't have a lot of time on this, but Jesus tells a lot of parables about weddings and banquets and dinners and feasts. And he goes to a wedding and he makes wine at the feast to celebrate and to have joy and all that stuff. And I really think you've got to filter all that stuff through Revelation 19. When Jesus is in real time, space-time history on earth talking to people, 
He knows the end. And he knows what's coming. And the reason he picks those things for parables is not just because these are stupid peasants who won't understand anything else and he's got to dumb it down for them. It's because he knows what's coming down the road. And he's given people a little taste of that in all these parables about weddings and banquets and all that kind of stuff. All right, moving on. The final outcome of the battle between good and evil is not in question. That's really clear from Revelation 19. Really, really clear. Um, One of the things of note is that Jesus is described in great detail. He's on a war horse. He has the sword. His robe is dipped in the blood of his enemies. Everyone else is just there. You don't read about them having swords or armor or they're just there. And Poitras just makes the point these armies have no distinct role in the battle. In the final battle, Jesus does not need you to fight. You get to be there. And if you're a believer, you get to be on his side. But he doesn't need you to do anything. He can handle it just with the breath of his mouth. Uh, Christ who creates by an effectual word, also destroys by an equally effective word. Derek Thomas. Uh, Last. Hell is a horrifying reality for those who have not put their faith in the Lamb. It's a horrifying reality. So I just want to give you, as we end, a little preview of what we're going to talk about next week in chapter 20. Um, Chapter 20, we're going to talk about the millennium, and we're going to sort out the options, and you can land wherever you want to land on the millennial views. Uh, And then we're also going to talk more about hell. And I just want to give you a framework tonight as you think about this lake that burns with fire and the beast and the false prophet are thrown into it, and the enemies of God are thrown into it. I want to give you a framework for what the the Hebrew mind thought about in terms of cosmology, okay? I've stolen these graphics. I had to take pictures with my phone because the photocopies weren't great. Uh, stole these from a book called He Descended to the Dead by a guy named Matt Emerson, who's a professor at OBU. Uh, really interesting book, okay? This is, when you look at this picture... Do not go flat earth weird on me, okay? Cut that stuff out. That's not the point. This is not a flat earth kind of thing at all, and Emerson's not saying that. He's just saying this is, in the Old Testament, the Hebrew idea of the cosmology, the universe, all that exists. Uh, There's the earth. That's where we're at. And there's the firmament of the heaven, and then there's the waters above, and then there's the highest heaven, the realm of God, okay? And it's not so crude as to think that if you could just get outside the Milky Way, then you get to the place where God is. That's not the idea. But it's just putting it on paper for you to make sense of this. Uh, Sheol, you've probably read that in the Old Testament if you've dug around in the book of Psalms or really anywhere in the Old Testament. It's referenced quite a lot. Sheol is the place of the dead. And then there's the pillars of the earth and the abyss of the waters. I want, to, I want you to think about this idea of Sheol. And I'll give you one more picture to make sense of this. This is what is encompassed in the Old Testament idea of Sheol. Okay, 
Sheol is literally the grave or the place of the dead. And what's there, or more accurately, who is there, okay? In the Old Testament Hebrew mindset, there is a place of the righteous dead. Sometimes that's called paradise or it's called Abraham's bosom, okay? Read in the Old Testament, so-and-so died and he was gathered to his fathers. This is a place of the righteous dead for Old Testament believers who die in faith, looking forward to the Messiah, not having seen those promises realized. It's also the place, same place, of the unrighteous dead. And sometimes it's called Sheol, sometimes it's called Hades, sometimes it's called Gehenna. Okay, And there's a place where unbelievers who die go, and this is the place of the unrighteous dead. It's also a prison for fallen angels. And we're not going to chase that rabbit down tonight, but you can chase it down in Genesis 6, and you can chase it down in First and Second Peter and things that Peter says about these angels. Jude talks about angels who did not keep their place of authority but rebelled, and God's keeping them in gloomy darkness, under chains, all that business. So this is the place of the dead. And what happened when... Jesus died on the cross is that he went, I think, to the place of the dead. He did not go to hell. Sometimes people get this weird idea of Jesus went to hell. He did not go to hell. He did not go to be punished. His suffering took place on the cross. And before he died, what did he say in John 19? It's finished. There's no more suffering. He doesn't need to go to hell and suffer in hell. He wasn't tortured by the devil. Some people say he went to this place of the dead and he gave everyone another chance. No biblical reason for you to think that whatsoever other than you would like to think that people get a second chance, but there's no biblical reason to think that. What it describes is that he went to the place of the dead and for those in paradise, Abraham's bosom, uh, that place became came transformed because those people who had been looking forward in faith now saw Jesus and the fulfillment of their faith and the fulfillment of their hope for salvation and all of that. It wasn't just a place of looking forward, but it was a place of reality. Uh, Jesus, in the end, is going to take Hades and Sheol and Gehenna and the fallen angels, and the false prophet, and the beast, and Satan, and the dragon, and Babylon, and all of it. He's going to take the whole mess of it, and he's going to throw it into the lake that burns with fire. That's the final state in the Hebrew mindset. But for these people, these people who died in faith, either in the Old Testament looking forward, or in the New Testament looking backward to Jesus, these people actually end up back here in a new heavens and a new earth. And you see that in Revelation chapter 21, where a new Jerusalem comes down, and the people of God aren't going to be floating around in clouds forever, but these are both what theologians call an intermediate state. This is a temporary holding place, and there's a division there. Jesus describes it in a parable in the Gospel of Luke. This whole mess is going to get thrown into the lake that burns with fire. And we read about it in 19. We're going to talk about it more in 20. And you need to have this understanding in place. This 
place of paradise in Abraham's bosom uh, ends up in Revelation 21 and 22 as the new heavens and the new earth and the people of God live there. That's the background to what you're reading about in 19 when he talks about this lake that burns with fire. That's the final state. You understand when it talks about these people were thrown into that, John has taken you all the way to the end. But the book's not over. So he's going to cycle back and he's going to describe it differently from a few more angles and give you some more perspective on it. But that's the worldview behind this. Uh, in the chapter we're dealing with, 19, this is a horrifying reality. And it is a reality. And it's a horrifying reality. When I say it's horrifying, I don't mean that it's bad. I just mean that it's terrifying. Rightly terrifying. And it should terrify people. Folks read the book of Revelation. My experience with the casual reader of Revelation is they get into like chapter 12, 13, 14, and that's where they get the most scared. And they start thinking about marks of the beast and beasts from the sea and beasts from the land and all this stuff. And I'm just telling you, that's not scary compared to this stuff. This is the horror. That there is a lake that burns with fire, an eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. And God's going to throw a mass of rebellious hum humanity and rebellious spiritual beings, spiritual reality, into that in the end. And it's final. That's it. It's horrifying. I'm not saying it's bad. It's just. It's righteous. It's true. It's measured, it's deserved, it's fair, it's all of that. But it is a horrifying reality to wrestle with, and Revelation presents it to you uh, so that you understand what's real. This is an apocalypse. You can't see any of that right now. You just look around and you see American pop culture, and you see wicked people prospering, and you see Christians doing weird things like getting together in a room and eating crackers and drinking little cups. And right now, all that looks kind of imbalanced. And Revelation is a revealing, it's an unveiling. John's pulling back the curtain to say this is the reality and the weight of what is real. Not laying out a timeline. He's showing you what is real. Uh, and there's heaviness to it. So, let's pray. And... Uh, We'll have two more nights. We'll deal with the millennium and hell, and then we'll deal with the new heavens and the new earth. God, we stop tonight. Uh, we thank you for your word. We thank you for this vision of Jesus in his glory and coming in judgment. And Father, we don't want to be um, embarrassed or apologetic for these things, but we want to join in the host of heaven and the host of your redeemed people and we want to celebrate uh, and rejoice in what Christ has done and who he is and what he will do. Father, I pray for those of us in this room and I pray that the, the horror of hell, the reality of hell would uh, be a terrifying thing to us and that it would give us a greater appreciation for your grace and your mercy in sending Jesus to ransom people for you from every tribe, nation, language, people, and tongue. God, I pray that this finality of 
death and judgment and this lake that burns with fire would motivate us as a church to share the gospel and to tell people the good news and to plead with them to repent and to believe in the Lord Jesus. Father, I pray for our church as we gather together to worship and we sing songs and uh, we celebrate the Lord's Supper. I pray that uh, the things that happen here would be an anticipation of the worship and the celebration that is to come. And Lord, we do want to confess our sin. We do want to be uh, serious about the things that we do. We don't want to be flippant, but uh, we do want to celebrate the good news and the hope that we have in Jesus. Father, I pray for these men uh, as they wrestle with these verses and as we think over the next couple of of months about uh, the millennium and hell and the new heavens and the new earth, and we pray that you would give us uh, eyes to see the truth, give us hearts to receive it, uh, help us to hear the words of this book, to keep the words of this book, and Father, we pray that the blessings promised in this book would be added to us. And we pray in Jesus' name, amen.